All right, for our, it's our ninth session, Brother John Hunter coming to us from Cedar Grove Baptist Church up in Millport, Alabama, right close to the Mississippi line. And uh, John has done some mission work as well, helping a brother out who needed some time here in the States. And he also spends time preaching at Teen Challenge as well. He has a ministry there among those young people. I appreciate that, the work he's doing there. And uh, delighted always to have John with us. John, also a fixture among us. And uh, brother, if you would come. There is a sense in which uh, right now Lachlan is my boss. Uh, he told me I need to stay still behind this mic or else he'd put that thing on my head. I've got one of those at the church back home. I wore it for several months until I, I, I can't stand those things. I don't know how you can have that thing sticking off the side of your head and every time you look that way, it's in your way and uh, be able to keep your concentration. And so... Uh, if you find me wandering, let me know. Uh, I was telling Lachlan, I, I now am doing videos of the messages that I put on Facebook, you know, since uh, the virus. And then I've continued to do so because of uh, people in Guyana for, uh, picking it up and then a uh, bunch of my relatives, that's all who would ever be interested, but uh, uh, are picking it up as well. And I've discovered something. I have made fun of my daughter's preacher because he talks with his hands. And I, I've said, you know, is he Italian? Uh, but uh, since I've been taking the videos, I have discovered that I use my hands an awful lot. And everything I said about that man, I'm guilty of. And uh, so I want you to know I'm guilty. All right, and I've also been given permission. I have been told since I am essentially the last speaker of this portion of the conference and the last speaker of the day, I can take all the time in the world. <laughs> Uh, now, Mrs. Scoggin has told me she's liable to take a nap. Uh, so uh, if I see you out there taking a nap, if you're under 60, um, I might throw a him at you. Uh, but if you're over 60, I'll let you sleep. Because ever since I passed 70, when I eat my noon meal, I don't last very long at the desk before I find myself wandering over to the easy chair and spending 45 minutes to an hour unconscious. So uh, I will be gracious to you uh, in that case. All right. I am going to begin with a strange verse of scripture, and then I'm going to pray. And uh, please, uh, I'm not correcting anybody, all right? Uh, the book of Hebrews is kind of unique. Uh, and it's in a flow of books. Uh, James, 
then Hebrews, and then 1 Peter, and then you jump over to 1 John, all follow a very uniquely uh, Eastern pattern of thinking. Uh, The book of Romans follows a very Western pattern of thinking. Uh, It has that steel trap logic from beginning to end. Everything fits piece by piece. And there's a sense in which you can find that in the book of Hebrews, but you also find this kind of circular reasoning that is very common among Eastern peoples. They speak about something, and then they move on. And then a little later on, they pick it back up again. And then a little later on, they pick it back up again. And you'll find that in the book of Hebrews, and even more so in the book of James, and then maybe a little more so in the book of 1 Peter, and then 1 John is that way from start to finish. Uh, And so uh, you may think that some of these speakers have been uh, trampling on each other's ground. No, they aren't. They're doing exactly what the book of Hebrews does. They're picking up on these various thoughts and moving forward and moving forward and moving, and you have to keep picking up on them. Uh, and, and I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to go back to chapter 8 and the very last part of verse 13. I am not correcting. There is, I found no problem whatsoever in the message on chapter 8. I just finished chapter 8. 8, 1 through 6, last week. And uh, I said uh, to the speaker, I I virtually said exactly the same thing you did, just not as well. Uh, And so I am not correcting anything. But listen, here's what it says. Now that which is decayed and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. All right, let's look to the Lord. Father, uh, help me. Uh, The biggest problem will be help me to get out of the way. Uh, Ego is a terrible thing. And Satan knows how to play it. And uh, so, uh, for the sake of your own glory, for the exaltation of the person of the Lord Jesus, would, would you just... Would you just speak and uh, minister uh, to the hearts of those that are here or any that might pick this up by way of uh, a video uh, or an auditory uh, recording. Uh, Bless, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Well, why did I read that? little section out of the end of chapter 8. What in the world is he speaking of that is about to vanish away? Uh, Because everything in chapter 8 has been speaking about the new and the old covenant. And we would say, well, there is a sense in which the old covenant vanished away 
when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary and then he was resurrected and set down on the right hand of God. Or as the previous speaker made the point of, he was able to sit down in a completed work. So wasn't the old covenant done away then? And I'll say, yes, in a sense it was. But there's another sense in which God so made it manifest to the Jewish mind that here the writer of the book of Hebrews, who I'm convinced is Paul, uh, is saying uh, to these people that you are going to be shut up to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take away from you every manifestation of the Old Covenant. Now, what was necessary in the Old Covenant, and there is a sense in which it is also absolutely necessary in the New Covenant, but there is a traumatic change. In order for you to have Judaism, and you may, some of you may remember me saying this before, but I'm going to say it again because I believe it's exceedingly important. In order for you to have biblical Judaism, you have to have three elements. You must have a tabernacle or a temple. Uh, the temple is nothing but an embellished tabernacle. You must have a temple. And then you must have a priest. And you must have a sacrifice. You cannot have biblical Judaism without those elements. But Jesus said to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, when they had rejected his messianic ministry, he said to them, your house is left unto you desolate. And he said that in the context of he was weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you? like a hen gathers her chicks. And then he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. What house? What house? Well, where was the thinking of all true Jews then? Even the disciples said, Jesus, look at those stones in this temple. As far as they were concerned, that was their house. God was supposed to meet with them in that house. And in 70 AD, the Romans came in and they were told, don't touch the temple. But when the battle was over, the temple was a shamble, destroyed. But when they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the pedigree of priesthood. 
which was kept in the temple. Nobody today can tell you, I'm a Levite. Can't tell you. Because that pedigree is gone. And then from that day to this, do Jews make sacrifices? You ever gone down to the synagogue and have them kill a goat or a sheep or an oxen or even a dove or a pigeon? No, you haven't. Because it's all gone. When somebody says, I'm a Jew, I always want to say, you are a liar. Because you might be an Israelite, but you are not a Jew. Because a Jew is a religious response. And your religion is dead. It is gone. But... Where is there a temple, a priest, and a sacrifice? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And unless we missed it, the Holy Spirit says this he spoke of his body. Do you and I have a temple? Yes, we have a temple. Do we have a priest with a pedigree? We have a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do we have a sacrifice? Oh, yes. The priest made the sacrifice On the cross, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. So who's a Jew? He is not a Jew which is one outwardly. He is a Jew which is one inwardly. Well, what's the difference? He has circumcision of the heart. Well, who does Paul say has circumcision of the heart? Go check it out in Colossians. He says, the child of God has circumcision of the heart. Uh, And so who is the true Jew today? It is the church of the living God. We are the children of Abraham by faith. Now, that has everything to do with what we're going to deal with now. And I'm so glad, Brother Salter, uh, you left me this section that I thought I've got to have in order for me to make my point when I am going to try to say that Christ is indeed the superior sacrifice. Start in verse 11 of chapter 9. But Christ, being come and a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, 
But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained, circle that in your mind, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkled the unclean to the sanctifying of the purifying of the flesh. Now I really believe the last speaker uh, gave us a clear understanding of what that verse means, even though he wasn't dealing with it. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot and purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He obtained redemption with a purpose. It purges, and it purges in order that you and I might serve. We are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are to serve the living God. Now here's where my passage is supposed to begin in verse 15. And I think we're going to spend some time just in verse 15 and then I'll move through the rest rather rapidly until I get to the application of these truths that the writer thinks are so important that he wants to make clear to us. Verse 15 says, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Now you notice that the covenant has been changed to testament. That's, that's significant. They're, they're the same word, covenant and testament, same Greek word, but the King James writers are using the word testament because of what's going to be following that points out what kind of covenant this is. Because you can have a covenant uh, between individuals. I, I made a covenant when I bought the double-wide trailer that I live in. I said, I will give you so much, and then as a result, you give me that double-wide trailer. When I completed that, I didn't die. But it's mine. That covenant has been satisfied. That's not the type of covenant that is being referred to here, which will become rather obvious. This is a testament. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal life. Now, what this verse is saying to us is that the covenant that is being made with us that's called the new covenant is a testament. That means it requires the death of the testator. And he's going to go on to say, just because as long as I'm alive... I can change my last will and testament until the day I draw my last breath. But when I die, whatever's in that contract, 
at least legally, is not supposed to ever be changed. It is fixed. And that's what the writer is going to make a point of here. This testament requires death. And it is a death that produces redemption. Now I want to spend some time on the word redemption. What is redemption? In the Greek, the word means to release on the payment of a ransom. But whenever you use the word ransom in our culture, people immediately think that somebody was captured, they were held, and in order for them to be released, there was demanded a ransom. That's entirely foreign to everything here. That is not what this is talking about. There is a ransom that is spoken of in the Old Testament. There were a couple of different applications of ransom, but I want to relate to you the one that fits here. If you were poor in Israel and you got yourself into such a debt that you could not possibly pay your debt. Uh, They didn't have any legal means by which you could declare bankruptcy. Instead, you could be sold. Your family could be sold. Your land could be sold in a sense, but only in a sense because your land was given to you by God. And so in the 50th year, it had to come back to you. At least that's what was supposed to happen. But if in that poverty you lost everything, there was always the possibility of redemption. Redemption was accomplished by a near kinsman. Somebody who was closely related to you could come to the person that you owed your debt to and say, I will pay that debt. And the payment that he made was the ransom. Once that ransom was paid, that individual was free. His land was again his. And everything began, in a sense, all over again. That's the ransom that is being spoken of here connected with redemption that is eternal and a purging of the conscience from dead works. Once that payment was made, 
the transgressor was free. And he was free from everything that had been brought against him in the first covenant. All right, now obviously what's the first covenant? That's the covenant of the law. And I feel like I've got to stop and do a little defense of the law. Was the law bad? Already it's been mentioned. Was the law bad? No. In fact, God says, one of the reasons that all the nations of the earth ought to think of you as the people of God is because God's given you such a wonderful law. The problem was never with the law. It was brought out in uh, the, the message before the last message that, that the problem was us. And, and Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8 made that abundantly clear. He says, finding fault with them. And if you'll go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that God made that very clear to the people. I mean, Moses came down from the mount. He let the people know exactly what the law said. And they said, all that he has said, we will do. They didn't say it once. They said it three times that I can think of in my own memory right now. They said that three times. All that he has said, we will do. They said, we like your covenant, God. We'll take you up on that covenant. We'll take you up on its promises of blessing. We'll take you up on its promises of curse. We accept that covenant. And you know what God said to Moses, don't you? God said, all that they have said is right. And then he says, oh, that there were such a heart that they could do them. You see, God knew from the beginning they weren't ever going to be able to keep that covenant. Oh, that there were the the problem was a heart problem. And what have we learned as we've gone through this book of Hebrews? What has God done for us? He's given us a new heart, which is simply emblematic of saying He gave us a new nature. And in that new nature, He wrote His law in our hearts and in our minds. Now, he doesn't say he gave us the capacity to keep it. But he gave Christ the capacity to keep it. Well, he didn't even have to give it to him. It was his nature to keep it. And so in him, we have kept the law. And so it cannot condemn us on two levels. It cannot condemn us because Christ has kept it for us and it cannot condemn us because Christ has died for all the sins that we committed under that law. And so he says, we have redemption from the transgression under that first testament. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal life. Now, again, I'm I'm picking up on uh, the... I've forgotten that man's name. That's terrible. Who who was the ma- the speaker before Brother Salter? Pardon? Kurt. 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 All right, Kurt Smith. 
Brother Kurt already brought out some things about the promise. Uh, we have better promises. Now, boy, I'm wandering a little bit, but I, I want you to get this. Turn back to Leviticus 26 with me, will you? I want to show you. It's already been pointed out, but I want to show you in detail what did the law promise these people if they kept it. Leviticus 26. And I want you to notice what we're, there's 13 verses that are all loaded with the promises. And then from 14 to 46 are the curses. But here's what the law promises. Well, we'll begin in verse 3, save you a little time. If ye walk in my statutes, keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land." Ye shall cause your enemies, excuse me, ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase, uh, shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword, and I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you, and ye shall eat of the old store, uh, even uh, unto twenty years, whoops, I jumped a page, uh, bring forth the old because of the new, and I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people. I am the Lord your God which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt that ye should not be their bondmen. I have broken the bonds of your yoke and made you go upright. Now that's the promises. Any promise of eternal life there? Can you find one promise of eternal life there? You've got promises of temporal life. All the promises under the old covenant are temporal. There are no eternal promises. God does not say, and I've heard some supposedly in covenant theology say, if they would have kept the law, God would have given them the new heaven and the new earth. No, the Bible never says that. Never says that. And so the promises are all temporal promises. The best you could get under the old covenant was long, prosperous, healthy, fruitful 
temporal life. At the point I am, <laughs> that doesn't do me much good. I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of giving away everything I've got. What does it mean to me? few years, I'm gone. <laughs> and I'm saying, so what? <laughs> I'm looking forward to something better, aren't you? And so here's all of these promises. Well, what kind of promises do we have under the new covenant? Well, you know what we looked at with Brother Kurt. My mind immediately goes to Ephesians 1.3. I am blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like a better promise to you? Sure sounds like a better promise to me. And it's all because we have a better sacrifice. But it's also because we've got a better temple and we've got a better priesthood and the priest has made a better sacrifice. Verse 22 of chapter 9 says, Even under the law in its shadows and types, almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Now, I have, I have a, a pastor that I have wonderful respect for in most areas. But in the past, he said the blood's not what's so important. It's the death of Christ. It's not right. The death of Christ is at the center of redemption. But it's the sacrificial death of Christ that's at the center of redemption. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so he says, even in the old covenant, everything was dealt with in blood. And certainly, as the shadow gives way to the type, uh, it is the blood of the sacrifice that has been made. And so verse 23 can say, it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And so he can say, for Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once. In the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's a little phrase in there. In the end of the world. The Greek is literally 
in the consummation of the ages. In the consummation of the ages. Christ entered in to the presence of God, put his blood on the altar that was pictured by the mercy seat, and that's the consummation of the ages. Wait a minute, I thought there was all this stuff out there. I mean, aren't we supposed to have another thousand years where we can fulfill all kinds of Jewish promises? I'll let you work that one out. Can anybody show me the, the, any verse in the Bible that says Christ is coming twice? Don't, don't give me a blabber about a, an, an appearance and a revelation because they're used interchangeably. How many times is Christ coming? The Bible always speaks of the coming of Christ. And when he comes, he's going to bring with him the new heaven and the new earth. And we'll enter into that. And brother, that's not a thousand years long. That's the same promise that he did give to the Jews. He will reign forever. Now that I've got myself in enough trouble, we will move on. Chapter 10, it's interesting. I've given the longest section of anybody in the entire conference. And you know how I preach. (laughs) That's scary. That is scary. Well, the law was a shadow of good things to come. But it was not the substance The substance, obviously, was Christ. We read the 40th Psalm, which indicated that he had come to replace all sacrifice because of the insufficiency of all those sacrifices. And now he has made the necessary propitiation so that in 1010 he can say, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Or again, the Greek is simply uh, upon one occasion only. That's it. It is, as he said, finished. But you know something, there's practical implications to all of this. Of course, the most practical is remission of sins, which he speaks of again in verse 18. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. But picking up in verse 19, he talks about, through the rest of the chapter, implications to the fact that we've been redeemed by a more perfect sacrifice. And so I want you to see the implications. What is God saying ought to be affected in our lives because of everything we've learned up to this point from the book of Hebrews? Well, he tells us. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness 
to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Man, I can't pass that by. I've got to stop again. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember what happened in the temple? You remember that the veil to the holiest of holies was ripped open from top to bottom. You remember that the scripture made a comment on that, saying that as a result of the the flesh of Christ being torn, we entered into the very presence of God. But suppose you were a priest in the temple fulfilling your course on that day. And all of a sudden, where you were never supposed to see, where you were never supposed to go, the veil tore, a veil that I'm told that it was supposed to be ten yoke of oxen, couldn't rip that thing. And yet it's been torn, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. I think indicating that it was a hand higher that that tore that thing apart. And it made it evident that the way into the holiest of holies was now made plain. But something else happened for that priest. If he looked in there, there wasn't any ark. There wasn't any mercy seat. That's, that had been gone for years. In a sense, what it said is, you guys have been carrying on a sham for a long time now, and it's all over. It is all over. The veil is rent. And it's been rent by a new and a living way. And so you have access into the very presence of God. What's first implication of this work? First implication is, I can come boldly into the throne of grace and find help in time of need whenever. Now that doesn't mean that I should come irreverently, but it does mean I have perfect Access. I don't always take advantage of that. As one of the speakers said, sometimes I feel, Lord, I don't have, I can't come into your presence. I've done so rotten today. My mind has been so many places that it ought not to be. I can't come into your presence today. But then he says, You come. My love is not affected by your performance. It's already been affected by the performance of Christ. You come. And so I come. And I find grace to help in time of need. First implication. Then in verse 22... He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. Second implication is a conscience cleansing. There is nothing that I can't tell God about. Uh, I have been studying the Psalms every day for about, I think about 20 years now. Now I study other books all along, but I study the Psalms every day. I've been doing it for the last, like I said, probably the last 20 years every day. And one of the things I find about the Psalms is that Psalmists are honest with God. David could say, Lord, I just murdered a man. I just committed adultery. And I've got to have your cleansing. And he got it. He got it. Paul persecuted the church, even to Damascus. He was going to haul women and children and men back to Jerusalem to have them tried and some of them stoned to death. And God said, you're my chosen vessel. And he was cleansed. No consciousness of sin anymore. It's all under the blood. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Well, that's, that's the whole book of, of Hebrews, isn't it? That's, that's the point that God's been making to his formerly Jewish people that have now become Christians that are in, in uh, the throes of thinking about turning back. He says, you take fast hold of your profession without wavering. Not because of you, but because of me. I'm faithful. And so you lay fast hold of your profession. The moment you start depending on you, it's all over. Uh, it's only in this dependence that almost every speaker has brought to your attention. It's only in your dependence upon Christ where you have any hope at all. So he says, you lay hold of that profession. And then in verse 24 he says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Once you have been taken care of, you have an interest in others. And so the implication of all of what God has done for us made clear in the book of Hebrews is that you now have a responsibility to the Christian family. You have to consider one another. And we're to provoke to love and good works. Do you understand what, what the scripture is saying? You do not have a, a responsibility, come put your rear end on the pew. 
hear what the preacher's got to say, go out the door and say, that was a good message, and forget it all. You have a responsibility to one another to be building the body of Christ. Provoke one another to love and good works. Now, he didn't stop by saying provoke. Now, I've, I've had churches where I had folks that were pretty good at provoking. <laughs> but it's provoke to love and good works. And then here's one that a lot of folks don't like. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You do have a responsibility to be here. You do have a responsibility to be hearing the word and allowing that word to impact your life. You do not have the right to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now, I've run into a few folks who say, that's not referring to the church. Please tell me in what way it's not referring to the church. Uh, I mean, where else do you, uh, uh, is, is this, you know, we're, we're going to have the Christian club and some of us are going to meet together every once in a while on the couch and, and that's what this is speaking of? No, this is not what he is speaking of. This is the church. It's an assembling of yourselves together. Body relationship. And he says, as the manner of some is, there are already some folks that are saying, not necessary. They did it. Some people think Barna must have fell out of heaven so that he could give us all of the statistics that he, gave, that he gives us. Because he said, well, there's a lot of folks who are spiritual who feel that they, don't any, they no longer need the church. I agree. They are spiritual, just not Holy Spirit spiritual. And as a result, they're falling away. And what did we have quoted to us earlier? They went out from us because they were not all of us. It is a scary thing to forsake the assembly. Its implications are, listen, verse 26 and 27, and then I'll quickly run this thing through and be done. For if we sin willfully, what's he talking about? In forsaking of yourselves together. If you sin willfully, after that you receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin but a certain fearful looking for the judgment of the fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He says, this is dangerous. Don't allow it to take place. Don't skip. They're playing football today. Did you know that? 
There may be some folks that are not here because they couldn't miss the game. Unfortunately, what that tells us is what their religion is. And there are some folks whose religion is football, and especially in Alabama. Well, then the rest of the chapter concludes with the warnings that we've seen over and over and over again throughout the book. I'll sum it up in verse 29 where it says, Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant the more perfect sacrifice wherewith he was sanctified, at least in his profession, an unholy thing and hath done despite under the spirit of grace. And so he says in verse 35, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, because in verse 38, the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And I trust this is true of you. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe unto the saving of the soul. Never got to my notes. Well, let's close. Father, we thank you for the message of the book of Hebrews in its perfection, in its uh, coming together, that whole idea of a perfect temple and a perfect priesthood and a perfect sacrifice bringing us into a perfect relationship with yourself. Empower us that we will be perseverant in the grand truths and the superior promises that we have been given and cause us to realize the implication of all these things and be properly affected by them for your glory. In the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.